Hey, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. Glad that you guys are here this morning. My name's Colin, and uh, I'm one of the teachers here at Southside, and I get to share God's Word with you this morning. I'm really excited for that. Um, I wanted to start by telling you a little story about something that happened to me over uh, this last summer. So we put in sprinklers at my house uh, this last summer, and it, um, you know, all of it was successful, but uh, it's kind of a process putting those things in, right? And so we rented a trencher to do this, and we had uh, one of my dear friends there helping us out, and uh, when it was time to take the trencher back, we got it all hooked up to the truck and everything, and then my friend's young son asked if he could ride with me to the, to the rental place, and so uh, I went and asked his dad, and he said, yeah, sure, and so we got in the truck, and we were headed there, and he was very quiet and seemed very focused on something, and then all of a sudden he says, Colin? And I said, yes. He says, what's that thing? And he's pointing to something in the truck, and I look over and he's pointing to the cigarette lighter in the truck, and I said, oh, well, it's a cigarette lighter, and so, um, you know, you, you use it to light a cigarette when you want to smoke a cigarette, and he looks at me and he goes, Colin, are you a smoker? I said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not that. It's, a lot of cars have these, and so, um, you know, a, a lot of people, um, because a lot of people are smokers, they put them in the car to, for convenience for people. And he goes, kind of nods his head, and he's quiet for a minute, and we're driving further, and he goes, you know, I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> I said, well, it, well, it's a lot of older cars that have these, because you know, not as many people are smokers these days, and so you don't see them as often. And he kind of nods and goes back to being quiet, and we're driving, and we're nearly there, and he goes, you know, Colin, my dad has a pretty old car, and uh, his car does not have one of these things in it. And I said, look, look, I promise you, I'm not lying to you. I'm not a smoker. Now, hand me that pack of camels over there. No, just... So it was so funny because as much as I tried to convince him, his prior experience, the evidence that he had put together in his life told him that you wouldn't have a cigarette lighter unless you were a smoker. And I couldn't convince him otherwise. And I tried to logically talk him into it, but all of his past experience told him something else. The reason that I bring up this story is because today we're going to talk about the power of an example, the power of a living example of the truth of the Bible. And the reality is just in the same way that that young kid was making his decisions based on his past experience, people, when they come up against the gospel, when they hear the gospel preached, when they're given an invitation to accept Jesus and to follow him, they make that decision in part based on their past experience. And so if they're hearing the gospel and they've had examples in their life of people who don't live that way, who claim to believe that message and who share that message with others, then they're not going to be inclined to believe it. It's not going to seem credible or believable. It's not going to seem legitimate to them. So today I want to talk about the power of an example and how a life that gives evidence for the gospel can be truly, truly powerful in this world where it seems like nobody lives the way that they claim to believe this world to be. And so we have an opportunity for our lives to send a message. And that's really our big idea for today. It's really simple is that our lives send messages. Your life sends a message. God wants to use you and the way you live, the way you speak, the words you use, the reactions you have, the attitude that you carry with you. He wants to use all of that in your life to communicate who he is to this world. And when we live a life that is in line with the glory and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get to be a powerful tool that God uses in this world to call people to himself. And when we don't, we end up contradicting 
that message, and we can be a very dangerous and dark experience in this world. And so in today's passage, we're going to see that Paul looks at two different men whose lives are sending powerful messages for the gospel. So let's go to the text together. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul writes this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, and the you there being the church of the Philippians. It says, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is a really interesting passage, and there's a lot in here that would kind of lead us, maybe as you're reading the Bible, to kind of start in this, in this section and kind of feel the tendency to skip over it, right? Because a lot of this is details about specific people and Paul's travel plans and his plans to send people to different places. And what I want to show you today is that this passage fits very neatly right into the argument that Paul's been making through the whole of this letter to the Philippians. And really what he's doing is he's using these two men as examples. So first of all, though, I I want to get really basic and just talk about what's going on in this passage. Paul is planning to send two separate people to the Philippian church, and the first one that he mentions is Timothy. So who was Timothy? Well, he's introduced to us in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. This is what it says about him. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So just in these very few little verses, this very short little section, we see a lot of detail, actually, about who this guy Timothy was. First of all, we see that he was raised by a Christian mother and a pagan father. So it's said that his mother was a Jewish Christian and that his father, though, was a Greek and so presumably not a Christian. And yet Timothy was raised in the faith by his mother, and we know from another part of Scripture, by his grandmother to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. And we also see that he had a good reputation, that his mother and his grandmother did such a good job in raising this young man up that he actually was known among the people of the church as someone who was firm in the faith, who was following after Jesus. And he had such a good reputation that Paul actually recruits him to be a part of his missionary team. And so Paul, the apostle who's traveling to all these different cities, setting up all these churches, actually sees this man, hears about him, meets him, and recruits him, asks him to come with him, and he does. 
does. And the amazing thing about Timothy, this strange character where we don't really, we have to kind of piece together from all these different pieces of of Scripture, Timothy is amazing because he becomes Paul's right-hand man. He becomes Paul's right-hand man. He is with Paul all the time. He is helping Paul in a lot of very strategic ways. We see that he co-writes a lot of letters with Paul. In fact, even this letter of the Philippians begins not just saying that it's from Paul, but from Paul and Timothy. He was so well-known in all these churches that Paul started that he co-wrote these letters with Timothy. He also went on missions in Paul's place. So when Paul couldn't go somewhere, he had confidence enough and trust enough in this young man, Timothy, to send him in his place. He had enough confidence that he was firm in the gospel that he could send him instead of going himself, being in prison or having to be in another place as he often was. And then finally, we see that he stayed by his side to the end. So when Paul is awaiting execution in Rome, many years later, he writes a letter to Timothy and says, come and be with me because he wanted that man with him as he transitioned from this life to the next. And so it's a very powerful example that Timothy sets as Paul's right-hand man. He was the Hamilton to Paul's George Washington. He was the Tonto to Paul's Lone Ranger. He was this Patrick to Paul's SpongeBob. He was his right-hand man. He was with him in everything, and Paul trusted him so much that he could send him in his place. And then also Paul mentions Epaphroditus, this other character that he elevates as this example here in this passage. And here's all that we know about Epaphroditus is from this letter of Philippians. Look at what he says, what Paul writes in uh, chapter 4, verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So what do we know about Epaphroditus? Not much, but we know that he was sent by the Philippian church to Paul to deliver a financial gift of support for Paul in his missionary work. And so he was the chosen messenger that the the Philippians got all this money together, this offering for Paul, and they gave it, they entrusted it to this guy Epaphroditus and sent him off to wherever Paul was to deliver this money to him. And it's possible from the text, it seems like it's possible that they expected him to stay with Paul for some time and to serve alongside him, to become part of his team and to minister to him and to join in the work of spreading the gospel that Paul was doing. And so it's possible that that's also there. And then the other thing that we saw as we read the text today is that Epaphroditus came down with an illness through all of this work that he's doing for the gospel. He became very sick, nearly died, and then was miraculously healed by God. So that's really all we know about Epaphroditus. And Paul brings up these two men not only to tell the Philippians, here's my travel plans, here's what I want to do, I want you to know that these men are coming to you, but actually to elevate them as living human examples of what it looks like to live out the truth that he is commanding of this church. And so I want to talk about what are they examples of. These two men that Paul lifts up and elevates as examples for the Philippians to follow, what are they examples of? Well, let's review a little bit of what we've seen in Philippians here. The first thing that Paul teaches us toward the end of the first chapter is that we are to have fearless unity as a church. This is what he writes in verses 27 to 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so the very first thing that Paul lays out in this this book is he's giving this truth to this church that he loves 
is that they are meant to be united, to strive side by side, to have the same mind, to be working for the sake of the gospel, and so much so they have such unity among themselves that they're not frightened by any opposition, by anyone who threatens them, by anyone who works against them, but they're focused on the work of the gospel that he's given them to do. And so he commands them to fearless unity, and then he explains how we achieve that kind of unity. He goes on in chapter 2, he says it's through an others-oriented life. So how do we achieve unity as a church when there's so many different people in the church, so many different attitudes, so many different backgrounds, so many different priorities? How do we come together as one body and do those things that Paul says? Well, Paul says that the only way we can do this is by living our lives for the sake of other people. Look at what he writes in verses 3 to 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so he says the only way you can achieve this kind of unity that God expects from us is by positioning yourself as a servant, as a humble servant of everyone else in your life, seeking not your own interests, but the interests of others, seeing others as more significant than even yourself. And he says, if you need an example of this, the example he gives is that we follow Jesus' example of humility. The way that we know how to live this life, we look no further than Jesus Christ himself, is what he says in verses 6 to 8. He says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the fearless unity is achieved by an others-oriented life, by following Jesus' example. And then last week we saw that all of this, all of this life that he calls us to is in reliance on the power of God working within us. Look at verses 12 to 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he commands us to do all these things, to have this humble attitude, to work it out, but... He makes the point, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so all of this is made possible only as we rely on God, as he changes us to be in conformity to the example of his son, Jesus Christ, that then we live that others-oriented life that together culminates in this fearless unity as the church of God, preaching the gospel, modeling the gospel for this world, being not afraid of any opposition to that great message. So Paul is using these two men to illustrate what that kind of life looks like. He's, in other words, he's culminating this whole argument. He says, look to Jesus Christ for an example. He says, rely on the power of God. And then he makes a point of saying, if that's not enough, I'm sending to you two men. And the language that he uses here echoes back to the things that he's already taught us as if to say, these two men are living human examples of what it looks like to apply these scriptures, these words to your life and to live that way as a community. And so I want to take a moment and look at those examples. I want to look at what exactly Paul is commending in these two men. And the first one that he mentions is Timothy. So look again at verses 20 to 22. Look at what Paul says about this man. Just, just really understand how much he's elevating this human being for the example that he sets. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And so he elevates Timothy, and I want to look at some of these these key phrases in his commendation and his praise of Timothy as an example of this kind of others-oriented life. First thing he says is that there's no one like him. There's no one like him, as if to say that Timothy is in a class of his own, that he's so different from everyone else that Paul comes into contact with. He is totally different. He's unique. He's in a class of his own. And in what way? Well, he actually tells us in the next phrase in what way he's unique, in what way there's no one like him. He says that he's genuinely concerned for their welfare. He says that one of the things that makes Timothy unique is not only that he loves, not only that he serves, not only that he goes out of his way to be a servant and to be humble for, his, for God's people, but actually that he does it genuinely. He does it sincerely. It's not an act. He's not a faker. He's doing it not to serve himself, not to get new acclaim for himself or to be thought of in the right way by other people, but because he genuinely loves and cares for the people that he serves. And so that is one of the things that makes him unique among so many other people. And we know that kind of difference. When you meet somebody who serves not because they're trying to serve in order to get something later on, but they serve because they're a servant because they genuinely care about other people, because they genuinely elevate the needs of others above their own. And that's what Paul says about Timothy as well. He says that all these other people seek their own interests, but that Timothy is unique in that he seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. And that echoes back to what Paul taught earlier in this letter, that he doesn't seek after his own interests, but he seeks to serve, to be a servant. He says that he has proven worth. And the reality is that the Philippians would have known Timothy. Timothy was there when the church in Philippi was planted, when it began. And so they experienced him. They knew when Paul, when Paul brought his name up and he mentioned all these things about him, they would have nodded their heads along because they had experienced the kind of life that this man led and the kind of service that he gave. And then finally, Paul remembers that Timothy has served with him. He says, as a father with a son, Timothy has served the gospel with him me. And at this point, Timothy's been with Paul for 10 years of ministry, traveling to all these different cities, being sent out and coming back with reports, doing all this stuff together. Paul knows what kind of man Timothy is. The Philippians know what kind of man he is. And so he says, if you want to know what it looks like, look at Timothy. Let's look at the other example, the other character in this passage, Epaphroditus. Verses 25 to 30 contain Paul's commendation of this man. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete whatever was lacking in your service to me. And so a couple key words and phrases here. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that Paul says he was distressed. That Epaphroditus had this great distress, but it's not actually, if you notice in the text, it's not that Epaphroditus was distressed because he was ill. He's distressed because the Philippians heard that he was ill. In other words, this man was so selfless, so others-oriented in his life, that it wasn't the sickness that he had that made him fear for his life that caused him distress, but it was actually the knowledge that his friends and his family and his church was worried for him. He so, so thought of others above himself 
that he was more concerned for their feeling than he was for his own health. And then also it says that he risked his life for the sake of the gospel, risked his life to serve the gospel that Paul was preaching. And the word here for risk is it's really interesting. It's actually literally the word gambled, as in go to the casino and gamble. Like that kind of gambled is the word that Paul is using here. In other words, he's saying Epaphroditus gambled with his life for the sake of the gospel. And that sounds kind of weird to us, right? It's not something that we would probably use because it sounds flippant, right? It sounds like he gambled his life away and he hoped that it all turned out. But here's the thing. Epaphroditus had such confidence in the gospel. He had such belief that the gospel was a firm foundation, that it was a solid investment for his time and for his life, that he was willing to put all of his life, everything he had at stake for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what it speaks of in Epaphroditus is his confidence in God, his confidence in the message that brings about the salvation of human beings before God. And so what is the example that these two men set? I think you can boil it down to two things, and it really is the culmination of what Paul's been teaching here. These two men have an other's focus. They were men for others. They lived their lives to be servants, to be humble. They didn't seek position. They didn't seek praise. They sought nothing more than to serve and to be humble before other people. Timothy was a man for others. He lived his life as a servant. He didn't look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Epaphroditus was a man for others. He was more concerned with other people than he was with himself. He lived for other people. They were others-oriented. They had an others focus in their lives. And then the second is self-sacrifice. That not only were they thinking of others, but they were willing to put some skin in the game for others. They were willing to sacrifice what they had themselves so that other people might experience a relationship with God. Timothy was willing to set aside his plan and his desires to give of himself for the sake of the gospel. Epaphroditus put everything on the line. He was all in for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to this church that he loves so dearly. He urges them to this humility that will lead to a unity in this church like nothing they've ever known. And then he gives to them two living examples to say, if you don't know how this works, if these ideas are too far up here for you to grasp them and understand how to live them out in your lives, then look at these two men who have so internalized the message of the gospel, so so taken hold of what I'm teaching you that their lives are living examples of what I'm calling you to do and to be. And so I want to talk about the big idea of Paul's passage here, which is really that your life is a letter from Christ, that through your life, God is communicating himself. He wants to communicate who he is to the people in your world in the same way that someone might write a letter in order to communicate a message to someone else. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. It's a different letter, but it really matches up with what he's teaching here. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so in other words, what Paul is saying there is that God wants to use you and your life and the way that you live to communicate who he is to this world. The theme for the book of Philippians as we've been going through it is living truth. And we haven't talked a lot about what that is, but it's been on your bulletins, it's been in your discussion guides and everything. But living truth here is exactly what we see Paul identifying in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says, these two men have so lived the truth 
in their lives, that they have become living truth to the people that they know, to the people that he's sending them to be with. And so that's the same way with us. We live out the truth, and so we become living truth. We become the truth in an embodied, incarnate form among the people in our lives that we live that truth among. And so my questions for you, first of all, who in your life has been living truth for you? I found that so often, so many of the testimonies of faith that I've heard from Christians who have come to Jesus or come back to Jesus, one of the biggest things that plays a role in people who make that decision to turn back to God is seeing the gospel lived out by someone in their own life. That they've been able to look and see that there's evidence that this works, that this is true, that there is a God and that he does have power, that he does want to change you, that he does want to give you new hope and new power and new faith for your life. They can look to those people in their lives and say, well, if it worked for him or it worked for her, then maybe it'll work for me. And so you can become living truth. Who has been living truth for you? And then are you living truth for anyone in your life? Think about it this way. If you are in Paul's shoes... If you were writing a letter to encourage someone else, would you use you as an example? If you were writing to someone to say, you know, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that he humbled himself, that he emptied himself as he died on the cross, would you then feel comfortable saying, and you can see that lived out in my life? Because what this passage tells us is that we're the letters of Christ, that he reveals himself to this world in part by the way that we internalize and live out the words of Scripture. I, uh, I believe that your life is meant to be a message from God to this world, and you'll either be a confirmation of the gospel or you'll be a contradiction of the gospel. And that when people hear the gospel, they're going to think through all those people who claimed the name of God, all those people who called themselves Christians that have the name of Jesus and their very name, Christians, And if you have confirmed the gospel in your life, then that is a powerful example that God will use to usher people into his presence. But if you've lived a life that contradicts the gospel, then you just might, at the very worst, you just might be showing that person that this God is a fraud, that he doesn't have the power that he claims to have, that he can't really change human beings. Because look at this person who claims to believe this gospel, who claims to be connected to that God, and yet they look like everybody else in this world who's living for themselves and not for others. A couple years ago for, um, for Mother's Day, we went down to uh, the Tri-Cities and went kayaking with my, um, with my mother-in-law over the weekend. And uh, it was Mother's Day weekend, and so we, what we didn't realize when we got down there is a few things. So first of all, it was really cold because it's... You know, Mother's Day is still very much winter in some ways and definitely some years, right? So we got down there and it was so cold. But then also we realized there's like a 5K going on. So we went down to the Columbia River. We were going to kayak in there. There's a 5K going on where people are running along the river. And so there's tons of people down there. And so we're like, oh, well, it's still worth it. And then we noticed there's this boat show going on where they're actually riding up and down the Columbia in these different boats and these speed boats going by and everything. And so we decided, you know what, we're still going to do it. It'll be fine. We'll just stay kind of closer to the shore, about a quarter of the way in, and we'll just really be careful and watch. And so we get in the kayaks. Do you see where I'm going with this? We get in the kayaks, and we start, we start you know, rowing. And I, I'm not even kidding. 
It's just, this is just my life. This is just the way it happens. But about 30 seconds into our fun day of kayaking, a boat comes by, and, you know, and I watch as the, the wake goes, and my wife is fine. You know, she gets over. My brother-in-law, he's fine. My mother-in-law, she's fine. And then the, the wave hits me, and I, you know, fall over, and I'm upside down, and it's freezing cold, and I can't even think because I feel like I'm in shock from how cold this water is. There's, there's like, um, icebergs drifting by and penguins swimming. <laughs> around and everything. And I just, I can't even think, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just know I got to get to the shore. I got to get to the shore. I got to get to the dock. And so I start swimming and I've got this big life jacket on and I can't really move my arms to swim. And, and my mother-in-law tells me that I started taking off my life jacket because I guess I had just resigned to let <laughs> death take me and all that. But so I'm swimming and I'm trying to get to the shore. And this guy who's running the 5k, which I guess was pretty nice of him. He stops and he comes out on the dock and he sees what's happening and he starts yelling are you okay? Do you need help? Are you okay? Do you need help? Can I help? What do, what do you need? Do you need help? And my mother-in-law says to him, yes, we need help. And do you know what he did? He goes, you can do it. Come on. Just a little bit quicker. Come on, swim. You can do it. Arm over arm. Swim faster. In that moment, I knew what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> I knew to swim to the dock. I had that part down. What I needed was someone to dive in, Baywatch style, swim out to me, pull me up on the shore, and make sure that I was going to live through this, which I did, you know, so it's all okay in the end. But what I didn't need was more of the truth. I had the truth down. Christians, we have a God who wasn't content to just stand on the dock and shout orders at us. He wasn't even the kind of God who was willing to just shout orders in a nice way, right? Like a cheerleader saying, you know, you can do this. Live humbly. Live this life well. You can do this. Be obedient to my word. Follow Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on me. We have a God who didn't just yell instructions to us, but actually dove into the water. And the person of Jesus Christ... Our God became a human being, entered this world, and he didn't only model the kind of life that we were to live, but he actually rescued us from the danger that we were in. He saved us from sin and death and hell by his sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross and his demonstration of power in the resurrection. And that's the kind of God for whom you are meant to be a letter. By your life, by your life, are you communicating that kind of God? Are you communicating the God who dove in? Or are you communicating the God who stands and stays dry and sits on the dock and yells instructions? Let's be the kind of people who show our God by the way we live our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the word as we read it today. Thank you for the challenge that these two men represent. God, I think we can compare ourselves with the example that we see in the scriptures. We can ask, are we living that kind of life? But God, I pray that in this moment as we go to worship, that our minds and our hearts would be fixed on asking that question of, what example do you set, Jesus? And how does my life point to that example? Or how does it point away from that example? God, you are so good. You are so merciful. You are so loving. You are so powerful. And God, we just want to live our lives in such a way that we can joyfully and obediently
point to you. In Jesus' name.